it's basically about the business of writing. And they tell you the stuff they wish that someone had told them when they got started as writers. You know, somebody can be a successful marketer and not necessarily provide a quality product. I'm going to let Moses go because he's frothing at the mouth to talk about this one. (laughs) (laughs) I like writing. I like reading. I like to immerse myself in books. That seems like a pretty good career choice. Oh, you sound terrible. What happened? I'm just kidding. Oh, man. (laughs) And now, pod structured on a Zeppelin by an apprentice mage and delivered by a rocket ship to a benevolent dragon. Adventures in sci-fi public. Sci-fi public. Thank you for listening to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. I am your host, Timothy C. Ward. It is a pleasure to have on the line today, Michael Bunker. Say hi, Michael. Hi. Do you go by Michael or Mike, or what's your preference? By Michael. Michael's the best, but I get called all kinds of things. Okay. (laughs) Very good. Well, for those who haven't heard of Michael Bunker, my experience with him is recently becoming fascinated with his... Pennsylvania uh, serialized novel. Uh, It is Amish sci-fi, which to me, I didn't know what to think about it, but um, since I've started reading it, it's very easy to get into. It has lots of surprises, um, really enjoying the characters, and it's, let's see, part four releases on Friday. I'm going to try and and release this on Friday. um, And it amps up on every on every level with each episode, so I'm really excited for part four to be released. Yeah, it's uh, it's been fun. So, uh, Friday ought to be interesting. Yes. So with my introduction out of the way, why don't you introduce us to Michael Bunker? Okay. Well, um, I'm a self-published author. Whether you want to call me an indie or publisher, author slash publisher. Uh, I've been only I've only been writing fiction for a little uh, full time for a little over a year. I actually wrote my first fiction novel that I published in 2011, but uh, then I waited a year or so after that. It was uh, late 2013 when I actually decided to do it uh, as a career and to do it full time, and then uh, released uh, the first part of the Wick series in. January of uh, or it's late late December of 2013, and it's been a wild ride since then. But I'm also a uh, off grid farmer. I live in a plain community in Central Texas, and we raise most of our own food. And uh, I have electrical services via off grid methods at my office, which is about several hundred yards from where I uh, where I sleep in my cottage. But uh, our house and our farm are completely off-grid and non-electric. That's me. So, man, I'm I'm blown away that you've only been writing for a year. Well, I've been writing for most of my life, and I've been writing blogs and nonfiction stuff for 15 years. Um, I just uh, I, I always threatened to write fiction, <laughs> but I never really took myself seriously. Until uh, actually, I had written uh, the last poems, which I wrote in 2011, and it didn't get a lot of attention, and I, I really didn't have any clue what I was doing. 
and uh, I started studying uh, what I was doing and uh, towards the end of 2013, and that's when I found out about Hugh Howley. I read Wool, and this was kind of just before it really started taking off. But uh, I started actually studying the profession of writing and the, and the art of writing. And uh, so pretty much, yeah, it's been just a tad over a year. Uh, what stage did it start taking off for you? You know, um, Wick, uh, which was my first novel after uh, you know, I got actually fully got into this. I, now, I, I don't want any people that are writers to think that uh, I was just starting off cold, that I had no audience, no platform, nobody, you know, but my family reading it. I actually had a, a pretty good-sized uh following of people who read my blog and read the things that I wrote and and especially as you know, I blogged our whole lifestyle of being off grid and and all of these things and I'd written a nonfiction book in 2012 called surviving off off grid so I had a, I had a fairly and I don't want to say huge but a couple of hundred people who actually read my stuff so when when Wick was about to come out um there was already a little bit of a buzz for it, more than I thought. I thought if we sold, you know, 50 copies you know, at launch, then I would be really, really excited about it. And it, it did so much better than I thought it was going to do. But as far as it taking off for me, um, it's it's been almost like a, a stair step up. Uh, the first one was when I took part in the NaNoWriWi competition, which is a really insane um, writing competition. Most people might have heard of NaNoWriMo, which is the National Novel Writers Month, which takes place in November of every year, and people try to write 50,000 words, a novel-length, long fiction, in a month. Well, this magazine in England was kind of poking fun at that, and so they challenged people to write a piece of long fiction in 30 hours. And um, as I was reading about it, I was also studying a lot about publishing, and I was studying a lot about Hugh Howie and his success. And so I decided that I wanted to uh, ridicule everything. <laughs> I wanted to make fun of everything and the satire about publishing and the things that I'd learned. And so I thought it would be fun to try, so I actually rented a um, motel room. Uh, I, it, it, I even messed up during the 30 hours because I fell asleep at one point for about 10 hours. <laughs> and so I actually wrote, uh, I wrote this but I originally called it Nano Rye. We uh, Nano Rye Wars the Hugh Howie must die. And before I wrote it, I actually contacted Hugh and I asked him if I could use his likeness of the book and that it was going to be satire and what I was doing. And he said, you know, you're crazy for even trying it, but go ahead and do it. And uh, so I wrote this little comedy bit and uh, I never intended to actually go through with the competition because the prize, if you won the competition was a, mainstream publishing contract with HarperCollins UK and but the prize was a ebook only publishing which to me was ludicrous I thought it was a joke I mean why would I actually give somebody almost all of my royalties to do something that I could do for free uh, there was absolutely no benefit whatsoever in in the prize and so as part of the joke as the meta part of the joke I decided that I was going to uh, try to sell a thousand copies before the competition even announced a winner because I thought that that would really emphasize the joke of the book. And so uh, I really started uh, uh, pressing out there, doing a little marketing. I talked to Hugh about it. Hugh gave me a blurb. He read it. He laughed. He thought it was hilarious, and he posted it on his site. And we did. We sold a 1,000 copies in less than 30 days. 
And that really was the first step for me. And from there, uh, I got contacted by some other writers who were writing rule fanfic, and they asked me to join a writer's group. And I never even considered that the little piece that I'd written for NRIWI was fanfic. It had Hugh in it, but I didn't really consider it fanfic. But they did, and so I said, sure, you know, I, I'd like to know more people. So I joined this little uh, wool writers group, and from there, um, maybe two months later, I never even considered of actually writing wool fanfic, and I saw uh, all that they were doing and the fun they were having with it. So I decided to write a uh, little fanfic piece in the wool universe and that was called the uh, the silo archipelago and uh, that was kind of my next step because uh, a lot of people who were reading wool and hugh howie stuff actually got a hold of wick which was still releasing that point i think we had part two out of the wick on the of the wick series and so from that you know people read that and they thought maybe i could really write and uh, so it's it's really been a fair step, and and it really started taking off uh, when a bunch of people got a hold of a little short story I had written back in January of last year called Pennsylvania. I, I wrote it in between January and March, and I had released it with no fanfare. I didn't tell anybody it was out there. But a bunch of people who had read Wick and had read my other stuff got a hold of that, and uh you know, it, 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 I, I like to tell people I, I'm an accidental sci-fi writer because it just it just kind of took off on its own, and it's almost been like a staircase uh, climbing. So it's been a fun ride, but it's been uh, bewildering as well. So tell us about Pennsylvania and how uh, Amish sci-fi is kind of a perfect fit for you. It, it always made sense to me uh, living this life because I, I live about, you know, couple hundred y- yards from where I'm sitting in front of my office and uh, we live completely off grid and I mean not even solar power we live completely without any power at all and then every morning I get up and I walk down to my office and I walk my office has uh, solar power and generators and I have uh, a computer and a laptop and those type of things and there was this very interesting juxtaposition during that walk and uh, the, the life that I've lived over the last 15 years has caused me to really spend a lot of time thinking about how uh, these cultures interact. And to me, you know, Amish sci-fi was the most natural thing in the world. If you actually went back and studied the uh, Anabaptists and the Amish when they first came from the old world to the new world, you know, a ship uh, to them would have been the equivalent of a spaceship. I mean, it was they were they were landlocked people who lived on farms. And to actually travel to a city and then go get on a ship that took you across the ocean, maybe six months to get there, and then to be uh, starting again in the new world. That was, there was no different in my mind than us getting on a rocket ship and going to a new planet. And so it seemed perfectly natural to put a an Amish young man in this situation and then tell a story from his point of view. And I also wanted it to be entertaining. And so... Uh, the people that have read it, and a lot of people have, almost invariably they say the same thing, and that is, you know, I didn't know what to think, or I thought this was going to be crazy, like a vampire, um, and it was just thrown together to shock people, but it actually makes perfect sense, and uh, and they're enjoying the ride as well. What kind of adventure 
can you tell us that uh, Jed has in Pennsylvania? I, there's a lot of spoilers, so feel free to just give us yeah. a, a hint of it. Well, um, you know, Jed is entering at the beginning of the story. He's entering into a uh, a period of colonization, and so he's going to a a far country, a far land. I don't want to say anything about where that is or what it is, but for for all intents and purposes, it's another planet. And um, he uh, does not realize that while he's doing this, he's in the midst of a, a great war that has broken out between two different parties. And one of those parties is called Trace, and they are the resistance and freedom fighters. And then the government in this uh, sci-fi uh, situation is called Transport. And transport is basically uh, what we would consider something like the TSA, a government agency that eventually took over because it gathered so much power. And because transport in that time period from when he lives and to where he gets to where he's going has become so powerful, this war is broken out. And so uh, he unknowingly becomes a pawn uh, in this whole story. And there's absolutely no way for me to tell you how that is without giving away spoilers, but... Uh, uh, the adventures are um, numerous. Uh, everything isn't what it seems. I, I like to uh, liken it a little bit to Lost, except for I actually have an end in mind, and I plan on solving the mystery. So I don't want people to take the illusion too far. But it's a lot <laughs> like Lost in that there's there, he repeatedly is finding things out about the reality that he's in that uh, change the whole story over and over and over again. And I think that's why so many people are enjoying it. There's something that I've found in, in your stories that uh, appeals to me without realizing, you know, I wouldn't necessarily have sought out uh, Amish fiction, um, but with the dystopian craze, um, post-apocalyptic uh, worlds where we love to see what would happen if our world was turned upside down, um, there's a lot of that in in your fiction, uh, especially with Pennsylvania what do you think as far as your uh, your readership, why why they found your fiction so interesting? Well, I think that it's, it's another lifestyle, but it's something that resonates with people. There's a reason that several million people a year travel to Amish country to drive around and look at a beauty, beautiful, scenic environment that is simple and pure and uh, harkens back to a time, whether it's golden age thinking or not, but a time in our mind that is more simple. Uh, the time period we live in right now is very hectic. It's very frantic. Uh, there are many, many dangers. Uh, the world is fraught with peril. And um, there's something attractive about, about that. Uh, secondarily, there's a lot of history that people know subconsciously, but they may not know the actual history of it. You know, the Russian Empire has come and gone, and uh, the Japanese Empire has come and gone, the German Empire has come and gone, Napoleon has come and gone, the uh, English Empire, the British Empire has come and gone. And during that whole period of time, the Amish are still here. And they've lived through all of these empires, and they have continued to uh, survive. As whole worlds around them have been overturned, and there's something in that that people just know subconsciously. And so I think what happens is these stories, putting uh, that face on a story that is fantastic, that's uh, 
uh, sci-fi that has a lot of uh, matrixy kind of things. That I think gives people a grounding of something that's attractive to them naturally that they like to hear about. And the juxtapositions you can draw are endless. And I, you know, if you've read much of my work, everything that I write has philosophy in it. And uh, I also write from a uh, being steeped in Russian literature and Russian history. And so if you read a lot of Russian history, you'll find, uh, excuse me, Russian literature, literature, you'll find the antagonists in the story are usually faceless. There's not usually this single antagonist who uh, is the, the face of evil that must be defeated, like in a lot of American uh, culture. In Russian literature, the antagonist is more systemic and is more faceless uh, evil. It's more corporate, kind of a corporate evil. And uh, that, of course, infiltrates all my work as well. And it fits perfectly with the story that I'm writing about Pennsylvania in that there's this kind of omnipresent evil system that exists and uh, our characters then are uh, operating within that system. And I think it brings out a lot that people really want to read. As I discovered Pennsylvania, I think I read each part a day each, uh, just really tore through them. And so I finished part three on Saturday, and I had to wait a full week <laughs> to get part four. I couldn't, I didn't want to read anybody else. I really enjoy your um, your style. It's easy to read. It, it's slow in that it takes your time, but it's also got a lot of reveals, um, strong conflict. And so I picked up Wick Omnibus, and uh, I'm also finding that there's not a whole lot we could discuss on that without getting <laughs> into spoilers, but uh, with right. the whole discussion on Russian literature, I think it would um, do justice to talk a little bit about that story. Right, right. Well, Wick, uh, I, I had written this novel a couple of years earlier called The Last Pilgrims, and The Last Pilgrims was the story. Um, what I did in that that novel, and I have to talk a little bit about that first because they're in the same universe with Wick, but uh, there's the story, a true story of the Waldenses, who were a uh, ancient uh, tribe of people that lived in the Alps, in Switzerland, France, Italy area, uh, going back a couple of thousand years, and they uh, had lived peacefully as agrarian people in the Alps for hundreds of years, and then they were uh, targeted by ecclesiastical powers of the day to be exterminated as heretics. And over several centuries, over 2.5 million of them were killed, and they were continuously trying to be exterminated, but they ended up being victorious. The story, if you actually go read the real story, makes Braveheart uh, look like, uh, you know, Miss Doubtfire. It's, it's actually such a fantastic story, but I wanted to take the story of the Waldenses and take it into a modern context in a post-apocalyptic dystopian story. And so I actually uh, created a Waldensian-like people called the Valenses who live in central Texas. And this is 20 years after a apocalyptic situation that involved nuclear exchange and all of that. So 20 years later, they're living and uh, off the land, much like the Amish do. And uh, so I wrote that book and uh, the the book it was my first fiction book so first of all it's not great it's not it's a great story it's just not all that well written but 
uh, a lot of people contacted me and they said, you know, it, it would have helped me to understand the last pilgrims more if I knew about the crash, what happened. And so um, I decided to write a prequel. And Wick is actually a prequel to The Last Pilgrims, and it happens 20 years earlier. And uh, in that story, and I also wanted to write a very, very Russian novel. So if if you've ever read uh, Tolstoy or Turgenev or any of these guys, it's a very Russian-style novel. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> it starts off in New York City. Go ahead. Did you have a uh, No, yes, I did read some Russian literature in college. Enjoyed it. Yeah, so, yeah, it's uh, it's it's that that kind of feel to it. And it starts off with a man who lives in Brooklyn, and he wants to uh, go back to his farm in upstate New York. And um, he's given up on urban life. He's given up all that. He wants to go back to his farm. Right before he's planned on leaving, uh, the Hurricane Sandy, which actually happened in October of last year, hit. Excuse me, October of 2012 hit. And uh, it was pretty destructive on New York City, so he ends up walking out of the city. And so the first couple of chapters are kind of a slow walk through the city. It's his view of urbanism with his new mindset of what things are like and how people help each other. He meets several important uh, people to the story along the way who will come in later on in later books. Um, And then he ends up out in the country and uh, walking through the Catskill uh, Forest Preserve and a second storm hit, which happened in real life in the same amount of time, which was a nor'easter, an ice, an ice snowstorm. And then from there on, he tumbles uh, into a mystery, goes back to the Cold War, and all hell breaks loose from there. And so I don't want to tell any more from that point, but from there to the end of the book is a, an apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic uh, situation that involves massive war and uh, a lot of excitement. So, uh, But it was something that I really, really wanted to write so that people who did read The Last Pilgrims would have the context for, for that story. There's something that I've noticed in how you told have told the story of Wick so far. I'm only about 22% in uh, that I really enjoyed, and that was uh, our main character Clay, um, he's going to live on. He he wants to go back to his farm, um, but right. there's nobody at his farm. His his wife and children have died. Uh, he's going. Right. He wants to live on a farm where all he has are tough memories, or you know right. you know memories of people that are gone. And as I'm reading, he's meeting some very interesting people. Uh, one of them, a woman that is just lovely, a uh, very nice son. You know, they could stay together and be happy, but he decides to leave. Uh, and, you know, that's very very early on, so it's not really a spoiler. Um, but it creates in my interest in the story a conflict where where he's going I know is not where he should be going, but that's, right. that's where he's going. And, and so it's right. like it hurts as a reader – and it really pulls you in to see, uh, is he going to go back to the woman? Is he going to meet her again? Uh, you know, when's he going to learn his lesson that he doesn't need to go to an empty home? Um, right. And so I, I just wanted to say that for me, I'm I'm really pulled into the story um, for that. Well, I'm reason. glad, but I want to warn you. 
there's some devastating things that happen in this story, and it is Russian. And um, so, I mean, if you, if you've read, uh, like you said, you've read some Russian literature, mm-hmm. nothing in, in in Russian literature, almost nothing ever happens the way you want it to happen. There are these devastating things. These people have been through so many trials and tribulations, and and then there is a a hopefulness in that, and the fact that they survived, and that they've been through revelations and the czars and the peasants and all of these things. But at the same time, uh, it seems to us sometimes with our Western mind that it would be so easy to fix. It would be so easy if you would just go do this, but they almost never do. And so, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm just <laughs> I'm warning you, first of all, it's a very long book, but also, you know, there's a lot of heartache along the way. And uh, there are, the story itself is bigger than any uh, vignette that happens in the story. It, it's all it's, it's a really really big canvas, and so I think people that read it like it a, a lot. Um, it, it has some things that are not what people are really, or what what the the people that run the system say people are looking for. It's a 220,000 words, so it's uh, with really, really small print. It's a almost 500-page book. Uh, and had I gone through mainstream publishing, they would have made me knock out 70,000 words. They would have had all – the title would have been changed. Everything would have been changed. But it is what, what I wanted it to be, and I think that uh, – I think you'll really enjoy it. Just stick with it. Oh, yeah. I'm definitely, definitely sticking with it. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about your decision to self-publish and uh, with WIC and also with Pennsylvania, you're going with the um, releasing it in parts. Uh, what's your reasons for that? Well, um, I'll go with the that first question first. and the, uh, I, I determined to self-publish because I, first of all, I'm, I've never submitted. So in other words, I've I've never sent out stuff to agents or publishers and all that. It, and it's not that I don't think there is some value to that system. It's just that it, it seems to me um, in the current, the way the culture is today and the society is today, it seems to me very backwards. It's, it's really opposite of almost any other art or culture or, or system that there is out there. And that there's this still very archaic, way that you go about getting published and it's very dehumanizing to me to me it's very anti-author and so the fact that i knew that there was already an audience of readers who already were willing to read my work without me going through a gatekeeper or asking permission to publish made the decision to do that very very easy for me that doesn't mean that i would never ever do anything with mainstream publishing it just means that i was i already had a predilection to to do things on my own and to do things and you know really do you i mean does anybody really think they would have published an amish sci-fi book you know they just they do that after it's already gotten popular and Mm -hmm. so um so with wick it was a decision that i just uh i made without thinking i didn't have to think about it very much and i'm also the opinion that if something is really really good and enough people want to see it then eventually uh if if somebody you know wants to take it that direction, then they can always make an offer, and then the system is more like it should be, you know, in my mind, which is that uh, there should be people out looking for talent, 
And so, you know, those decisions, and I, I cannot remember right now what your second question was. It was about Wick and Pennsylvania, but... Um, about releasing it in parts. Okay. Um, you know, that's the way I like to enjoy stuff. I, I've always been... Uh, I'm an old-school kind of guy. You know, a lot of great literature was released serially, uh, from Charles Dickens uh, going through Hemingway. All, all kinds of great literature has been released that way. And... Uh, I read kind of fast, and when I sit down and read a novel, if I knock it out in a day or two days, I love the book. The book doesn't change, but I have this almost empty feeling almost immediately after I read it, like going, why is that over? I don't want it to be over. And so Mm -hmm. when you watch a program, a television program, let's say you watch 24 or Lost or something like that, you get that, oh, at the end of every episode, but you know there's another one coming. And it's, it's, it, to me, it's just a very exciting way to, to participate in art. Uh, I, I love to look at uh, uh, Vermeer you know, paintings, but wouldn't it be awesome if another one was coming out? You know, if it wasn't all painted back in the 1600s and most of them lost? It would be great to me if there was another Vermeer coming out or another Picasso or something coming out that I could look at that I've never seen before. And uh, when I saw, I had already thought this. I actually released uh, Surviving Off Off Grid, my nonfiction book, which was the first book I really wrote that was a full-length book. I, I released it online for free. I did one, one chapter a month. And the feedback, the communication with the reader was so awesome. It was it was the most exciting part of the project. Was actually talking to people every day who were reading it and who were had suggestions or think, told me things they liked. And uh, when I start first started saying this is something I want to do, I want to write fiction. I hadn't even heard of Wool at that time, but uh, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. I I t- got a taste of it with the. the the last pilgrims because I had a lot of beta readers and I would release it one chapter at a time. My children were, were, were experiencing it one chapter at a time. I would write a chapter and then we would all sit around in chairs and I would read the whole chapter to them. At the end of every chapter, they would go, Oh, and they wanted the next chapter. And mm-hmm. to me, that was, it, it's how I like to enjoy art. And so, um, I decided I was going to do that. And then I found out about wool and I read Hugh Howie's fantastic story about, how he had released the short story and how people really got onto it. And, and he was one of the very few people that I'd ever met that was doing what I had already been doing, which is talking to my, my readers, communicating with them. And, uh, and I thought this is the perfect way to do it. It's not new. It's one of the oldest. It's actually more original than, than any other way to release a book. I don't have any problems with releasing a full book and I've done that with some, but, um, yeah, I really, really look forward to the process. Uh, Osage Two Diamonds, which was a a serialized uh, book that I wrote for Amazon, was a commission work in the world of uh, Kurt Vonnegut. That was one of the reasons that I was attracted to that project, was that it was serialized. And I would actually have this opportunity to talk to the readers every week before the next episode came out. As I've uh, read Pennsylvania, and I agree, I, I love reading it and knowing there's another part coming out. I would like to do something similar, but one of the biggest challenges I see is as someone that I only have one short story published. So I don't have, mm-hmm. you know, you know, and I spent more money on a copy edit than I've made <laughs> from the story. Uh right. When you have these parts, you're paying for covers for each part. Um 
do you have any advice for someone that doesn't have the the income coming in as far as um yeah you know and, and you're not going to be able to get uh, recover for five different parts if you're getting started stand that completely and uh one thing I have discovered in talking to a lot of writers is and my own life is that there are people who you know who have skills who are able to do things. And I found as I communicated with more and more people, I found people that were willing to do these things. They may not be, you know, the best cover artist in the history of the world that's out there, but you know, um, my formatter is my neighbor, my next door neighbor formats books. Um, I know that I know people whose mother is a copy editor or who have friends that are able to do these things. And so, um, I think cover art is important. I think it's something that really does sell books, no matter what anybody says. But at the same time, um, there are there are very likely cover artists out there who don't know that's what they are. You know, when I very first uh, met Jason Gurley, he was already a graphic artist, already a very good one, and he had done cover art for himself and for a few other people, but he was not doing it professionally. And... Uh, he actually contacted me because uh, we were already friends and we were already talking, but he said, you know, some of your covers are horrible. I'd like to redo them. And so, you know, you just never know. I don't give up. And when you, when you're online and you're talking to somebody, I was, I was online today and somebody who uh, follows me on Facebook just in a, in a uh, Facebook post said, I guess I'm going to go need to look for a new job. Does anybody know anybody hiring a graphic artist? If I was a new writer at that point, I would have jumped on that just to communicate with him and say, okay, uh, how can we do this? You know, I, I'll give you another example. I'm, one of the things I'm trying to do with Pennsylvania when the omnibus comes out, which hopefully will be in April or early May, is I want to make the print book and the ebook examples of what can be done in the indie world. Uh, not just the agility and the speed of getting things to market, but what can be done quality-wise. My next blog post, which should be out tomorrow, is about that. It's about quality and the myth that somehow indie published books are inferior because the best ones are not. And uh, But in doing that, I determined that I wanted to have the great artist Ben Adams do some artwork for the Pennsylvania um, omnibus. And you know, I'm, I'm not made of money. I don't have the ability to just go out and, and do everything that my mind tells me I'd like to do. Well, I contacted Ben and I said, is there anything we can work out? Maybe we can work out a t-shirt deal where you do some t-shirts for Pennsylvania or you do, or we do some kind of mugs or something that's Amish um, directed. But uh, you never know. Somebody can say no, but I'm always trying new things, asking people questions. You know, is there a way that we can, I can do something for you. Barter and trade is big among the plain people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, putting your ear to the ground, listening to people, finding somebody that has talent that'd be willing to do it for you. And then also, you know, trying to think of creative new ways to maybe barter or trade uh, for those things. At the end of the day, uh, the work needs to be good. And that needs to be the focus, and that needs to be the main thing. And then from there, you know, hopefully you're building an audience, you're talking to your readers, you've got an email list, and, 
and it may be a long, long, slow, uh, you know, uh, climb up the hill, but you'll get there. I see that you have a collaboration story. Um, I want to say Legendarium. Is that what it's That's called? Correct. The uh, yes. is your new uh, or upcoming? Is it a novel? It's a novel. It's going to be a a short-ish novel. It won't be as long as some of the other ones have been, but uh, it'll probably we'll call it a novella. Okay, tell us a little bit about because I know that you have a a page on your website that talks about your collaboration project. Yeah. Um, you know, it's part of being in this new media and being part of the new publishing is that I think we're in this revolutionary time right now. It really is revolutionary. And there's going to be some great writers over the next two years to three years that come out of this, uh, this thing. I've, I've received so much aid, so much help from people like Hugh Howie and Jason Gurley and a lot of other good friends who have uh, boosted my work, who've talked about it online, who've, told people to go read it and who have helped me. And so that's one thing that I want to do is I want to help other writers come along too and uh, to try to pay that forward. At the same time, I had written, and we talked about the Hugh Howie Must Die book, and uh, I created a character in there called Bombo Dawson, who's a very comedic and uh, uh, he's kind of a copy of me, although he's not at all like me, but he's kind of like me. He's a writer, he's big, he's got a beard. <laughs> so I created this kind of comedic character called Bombo Dawson, and people really have uh, identified with him and liked him. And people have been emailing me for a year now saying, when are we going to get some more Bombo Dawson? So there's two things I wanted to do. I wanted to be able to help other writers, and I wanted to be able to give people more Bombo Dawson. I started writing a second Bombo Dawson book, but with so many other things going on, I wasn't able to really make much headway. While this was all going on, in the last year, I've had at least 10 to 12 other authors that have contacted me and asked me about doing collaborations. I've done one with Chris Awalt. I've done, I'm working on a book right now with the great uh, Nick Cole, who wrote The Wasteland Saga. And uh, I've got a proposal for a collaboration book uh, with some good friends. And uh, I just have had to say no, because I just haven't had that much time to do it. And then a friend who wanted to collaborate with me um, uh, contacted me, and he said, well, have you thought about doing something like what, what Joe Conrath is doing? And Jay Conrath, of course, has sold millions of books, made a million dollars last year in ebooks alone, great writer, great friend of indie publishing, and he had created this collaboration program where you could write a story, a, a new writer who's trying to, catch an audience and catch the eye of readers can write a story in the world of one of his characters. He has a character named Jacqueline Daniels who goes by Jack Daniels. And he's written, uh, Joe Conrad has written a lot of books with her as a character. And so he put that character out there and said, okay, you come along, you write a story, maybe 20,000 words. And if I like it, I will take it. I will rewrite it. I'll stretch it out to maybe 30,000 words. I'll put some uh, words in my character's mouth that make it, People, so people will identify the character. I will pay for the publishing. I'll pay for the cover. I will pay for the formatting. I'll pay for the editing. And we'll split it all 50-50. And I thought, well, that's a fantastic deal. To get your name on a book with Joe Conrath and uh, just out of the shoot, you could do this. And so 
this friend said, well, why don't you do something like that? I said, well, I'm no Joe Conrad. First of all, I haven't sold a million books and nobody really knows who I am, but he said, you know, well, I do. And there are other people that would do it. And so why don't you think about it? So I contacted him back and I said, okay, you know, I'm thinking about it and I would like to do it. The only difference is, is I don't want to be the one doing the publishing. I want to give, basically give the book to the other writer they can publish it, and if they want to pay me a royalty out of it, that's fine, but I'm not going to do it for the money. I want to do it for two reasons, to help my reader who wants more Bombo Dawson and to help this other writer. And so the first one uh, that uh, contacted me absolutely and said I'm ready to get started right now is Kevin G. Summer, Summers, who is a great writer. I've read a bunch of his stuff. I like him personally. He's a farmer like me. And so he came up with the idea uh, for the Legendarium. He wrote the pitch, which is one of the best pitches I've ever read for any book ever, and it's hilarious, and it's it's really, really funny. I contacted Jason Gurley, and I got uh, commissioned him to do a wonderful cover, which is one of the best covers I've ever seen. And uh, I'm in contact with Kevin two, three times a day. We're working on plot points, and we're discussing the story, and I think that it's going to be a great, funny book, a great addition to the Bombo Dawson story. And I think a lot of people between... A couple of weeks ago, and when this book comes out, are going to learn about Kevin Summers, and they're going to be able to to uh, follow his career and see how well he does. Very good. I, I wanted to mention uh, your Dunes Over Danvar uh, series, if we could, real quick. Sure. You have uh, two stories so far, or two parts released in Hugh Howey's Sand uh, Universe. Why don't you introduce us to that story? Sure. You know, after I did the uh, Wool uh, fanfic, the Sao Archipelago, I decided I wasn't going to do any more fanfic. I wanted to write my own stuff only. Fanfic is hard. It's not easier than original fiction. It's harder. And um, and it's harder because you already have this world that's there that you really, really need to match. You don't want to disappoint that other writer's uh, audience. And then uh, Amazon contacted me and asked me if I would do a serialized novel in the world of Kurt Vonnegut, which would be fanfic. And I said no, and then uh, I decided uh, there was a lot of money, and I decided to say yes to it. And I had fun. It was a great, great uh, time. But I, after that, I said, you know, no more fanfic. I'm going to write my own stuff. And then I read Sand, and I actually believe, and this I know this is probably considered heresy to a lot of Hugh Howie fans, but I think Sand was better than Wool. And uh, I thought it was more open to a good story being told in that world than Wool was. And so as I read it, uh, I, sometimes I just challenged myself to stuff, and I thought, wouldn't it be great to uh, put out, and I was reading the individual stories as they came out in the serialized way, and I had read two or three of them, and I knew the omnibus was going to be coming out after the fifth one, and I thought, wouldn't it be great to actually have a piece of fanfic hit the ground within 10 days of the original book. Wouldn't that be an, a unique thing? And so I, I was already sketching out ideas and writing before the last book came out. And as soon as the back last book came out, I hammered it out, got it done. I had it edited by David Gatewood, who is Hugh Howey's editor. So it's the same editor that edited the original one. I had it, um, the cover done by Jason Gurley, who did the cover for Hugh Howey's sand. And, um, I had it out within 10 days and, very, very quickly after that hit the ground, I had people contacting me telling me how much they loved it. They really, really loved the story. 
Um, and so I decided, you know, I want to continue this and I want to at least continue this story out. And so a couple of weeks later, I, uh, put out, uh, part two, which is called salvage. And in part two, I not only had Hugh Howey's editor, which is David Gatewood and his cover artist, which is Jason Gurley, but I also had the same people who formatted fans. So it's probably the first fanfic that's ever gone out there with the same cover artist, the same editor, and the same formatter. And then uh, I just actually put down the first chapter of part three today. So hopefully I'm going to have that out in a week, week and a half, maybe two weeks. And then I'll be back on writing Pennsylvania 5 because I have to have it out by the end of March. What was your philosophy as far as um, fanfic? Because I wrote a fanfic uh, for Sand as well. I'm I'm looking for a cover artist, uh, hint, hint, but uh, <laughs> anybody listening. Right. And I, as I was writing it, I I chose an event that happened in Sand and chose to stick with it. Um, but I was right. also telling my wife, you know, it's my story. I could start at one point and make anything I want different. Uh, what what did you think when you were writing Dunes Over Danvar? How how close did it have to stay to what he wrote? You know, I think that you know every writer can do whatever they want to do, and that's what's great about it. I know Great Fall, which was written by Jason Gurley in the world of You uh, How It Sand, has almost, other than the fact it happens in a silo, <laughs> there's some some references to the 34th floor and all that. Almost nothing in the in his book has anything to do with wool at all. And yet that thing has been a great bestseller. In fact, it went up to number 59 on the Amazon.com bestseller list just a week or so ago. And so, um, you know, the author can can do what they want. And with Sand, uh, to me, I, I wanted to, I thought it would be cool to have a story that paralleled the original story so that you would see events mirrored through my story. In other words, it was almost like in... Back to the Future Part Two or Part Three Part Two, and you know he goes back to the mall, and you actually see him and and what went on in the first movie happening in the background, and uh, that's what I mean. It wasn't a time travel story; mine wasn't, but I wanted to have events in my story happening, and then at some point you would actually see what was happening in Hugh's sand story in the background, and so that's just a. a artistic decision that I made that I thought would be fun and cool and people have, have really liked it, but in no way should that limit what anybody does in that, in that world or any other world they want to write fanfic in. Very good. Well, Michael, it's been great to chat with you. Um, am I forgetting anything as far as something that you'd like oh, to no, mention? It's been great. Okay. No, no, everything's uh, been great. It's been good to talk to you and having fun and, uh, everybody stay tuned. <laughs> Oh, I did want to mention people that sign up to your newsletter, uh, you like to have giveaways and goodies. The way that I found Pennsylvania was the newsletter offered the first two parts for free uh, with a Smashword code. Um, is that a limited time offer? Um, how would people... Yeah, that one's over, but I, but I okay. do things like that all the time. So if they're on the email list, they'll have... In fact, uh, Pennsylvania 2... Uh, I actually gave that to everybody on my email list for free when it came out. So I give away free stuff all the time if you're on the email list. Okay. And I think WIC Part 1 is free on Kindle. Are any of your other Part 1s free as well? It is free on Kindle, also on Smashwords, and just about everywhere else, the Nook and everywhere else. 
Um, no, but Pennsylvania one will go perma free as soon as the fifth part is out. So okay, um, you know people can stay tuned and uh, and it will eventually be perma free. Uh, but like I said, if they're on my email list, they're likely to get free stuff all the time anyway, or access to free things, coupon codes, and those things. And you said uh, Pennsylvania Part Five is coming out in late March. Is that about right? March, March 28th is the uh, is the date. It's already available for pre-order, so people can pre-order all of it right now, or they can get all of it bought right now. Or if you want to, just wait. Hopefully, by early May, we'll have the omnibus edition out and uh, people can get the whole thing at one time. If they're not like me, if they don't want to go through it serially. Very good. Uh, people can follow you at, is it journal.michaelbunker.com is your website? That's right, or just just type in michaelbunker.com, that'll get you there too. Okay. And he also has a Facebook group called the AZ Zone. Right. It, it's just the AZ. Okay. And uh, if you contact me in any way i can tell you how to get there i'll give you a facebook uh deal or you can just type in the az uh, two words and that stands for the Omnizone, zone which is a part of the pennsylvania book and uh and you can find it there or just email me or contact me and i will uh you can always email me at mbunker at michaelbunker.com and i can give you whatever information you need to find what you're looking for <laughs> okay once again, Michael, it's been great to chat with you. Uh, good luck with all your uh, all your writings, and, and we wish you many, many blessings. Thanks, Tim. I appreciate it, and I'll be talking to you soon. Okay. Sounds good. Bye-bye. Visit Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing for show notes, links, reviews, special guests, videos, and more. Email us at adventuresinsci-fi-publishing at gmail.com. Sound effects from the Free Sounds Project. Music by Asymmetry, found at musically.com. No authors were seriously damaged in the making of this podcast. <laughs>